All right, thank you, Jared. And the, uh, the Bible, God's holy and living word, actually depicts real life. The good, the bad, and certainly it doesn't shy away from the ugly. Like a lot of dark things are found, not just in Judges, but all throughout the text of how we have separated ourselves from our Father. And so all of these dark things that are found within these pages, I actually think we should learn to appreciate the entirety of the Word of God. That it, it hasn't been cleaned up, it hasn't been sanitized to where it puts before us like, oh man, I'm never going to measure up to this cleaned up version of who, I'm actually, who I actually am created to be. Instead, it, it depicts real life. And we should also remember that in the events that we read through, that these are real people. These are real people with real feelings, emotions, dealing with not only their own sin and suffering, but also suffering at the hands of those who have sinned against them. And through it all, it's a story, the word of God from cover to cover is a story of our desperate need for a savior, a hero to step in and to make a better way. Now, sometimes when you come across uh, a horrific text like this, uh, just as we would with any news headline, like, oh my gosh, how is this happening? We find ourselves asking the question, why? Like, why do such horrible things take place in our world? Why do they take place in the word of God? But I want us to sit in that tension this morning. Let's see where it takes us. The people of of judges are in desperate need of a savior king. And in our text this morning, once again, that tells us, verse one, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Like this sheds light on the depth of Israel's wickedness. Here we have another Levite who is supposed to be, just to be very clear, Levites were supposed to be priestly characters. Now, this is not the same Levite from chapter 17 and 18. If you've been around, you, you saw we talked about a different encounter. This is not the same one. This man lived in an area controlled by the tribe of Ephraim, and we see him introduced as someone who has a concubine. Now, a concubine uh, is a woman who would be considered to be kind of like a second-class wife. Typically, they would come from families who had little wealth or status, and that's important to, to kind of just note there. And so these women were given away as a means to, to find some sort of worth for their family name. These women were treated like property, like an object to be used and, and honestly abused for the sole purpose. Their sole purpose that somebody has placed this identity on as a concubine, the father has given them away is for the purpose of sexual intentions. Now, their masters would care for them along the way, but they certainly weren't given the same rights as a normal spouse. Remember, they were like a second-hand, second-class spouse. And so scripturally, here's what we know. If you look back at, at God's word, God intended for marriage to be between one man and one woman, but culturally speaking, many men, as we see here and all throughout a lot of the New Test or Old Testament, including ones listed in the Bible, would practice this culturally appropriate form of polygamy. Now hear me on this. It never ended well, ever. You, you'll never read a story where it's like, oh, and that man had a concubine and it ended great. Like, it, you'll never read a story. It's always brought about pain and sorrow. That's not God's intention for marriage. It is one man and one woman. 
But somewhere along the way, our deceitful desires, lustful desires, have convinced us that we need something more than what God can offer. And that's where we find this godly, priestly Levite in this story. So our first character, this Levite, was intended to be set apart. He was intended as God's people. But, verse 1 is clear, there's no king in the land. He's assimilated himself into pagan culture, the idols of the land, and he's now taken, remember that word taken, he's taken a concubine, much like his former judge, Samson, who sees, who wants, and who takes. In verse 2, we see this woman was unfaithful. Now, we don't know what the extent of that is. So she leaves him. She's unfaithful, and we see that she leaves him. She goes back to her father's house in Bethlehem. Interestingly enough, the man, the master, his Levite, doesn't pursue her until four months go by, and now he travels back to her home. Perhaps his desire has grown for her, or at least his desire has grown for what she can give him. He wants what she can offer. And so he packs up, he heads over to her house to woo her back maybe or just demand that she comes back. The woman's father, we see, oddly, gladly welcomes him and convinces him to stay for multiple nights. So here, have his father. He's offered up his daughter either as some sort of trade or, or actually what's most, more likely is he desired his family to receive some sort of cultural approval. Remember, not wealthy, uh, not known in their society, in their culture, and so you, you don't have much, and so they would give their daughters away as a means to like, oh yeah, look at that family, look what they've provided, a concubine. And so he desired his family to receive some sort of cultural approval more than the desire to actually love, serve, and protect his family. And we see the father, he goes to great lengths to assure that this man is welcomed. It's probably not out of a heart of gratitude to the Levite. It's likely because he knows the consequences, culturally speaking, of his daughter's actions. His, act, his daughter's actions that he actually imposed on her. He knows the penalty for adultery or abandoning your master. Culturally speaking, either this woman was going to return to him because he owns her, or she's going to die, and this family becomes even more of a disgrace. Not only were you already a disgrace, you've offered your daughter as a concubine, now she's returned home, and if she refuses to come back to her master, then this family watches the daughter get persecuted and killed, and then this family is now known as... I mean, they haven't been martyred for anything except for a disgrace to the community. Now, as a father with two daughters, I have a hard time not thinking about the movie Taken with Liam Neeson. Like, I, I just, it's hard for me to sit here and to read that, that the, the father gladly welcomes this man who is treating his daughter with such disrespect and abuse I mean, the father seems to care more about his family name than even her well-being. Some might read this, though. Some of us might get there and say, but Matt, but there was a call to great hospitality in that culture. Like, you can read all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was, a, there was a deep call to hospitality, to your house, 
guest. I agree, but not at the cost of your own daughter. Offering her up for marriage is one thing. That's normal, culturally speaking, to be very clear. But to offer her as a concubine, that's throwing her right back into the slavery that God had already delivered them all from. Like his first call was to live out Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And then we see, teach them to your children. Talk about all of God's faithfulness with your family and what God had already done for them. Which is what? He delivered them from oppression, from slavery. He rescued them out of the hands of the enemies over and over again. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Be careful. Be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Instead, fear the Lord your God. Worship him. Worship God. Fear God. Trust God. Don't forget his faithfulness to you. This was the call of the Father. This is the call of that, that, if you think back a few weeks ago, do the next right thing. The next right thing is remember, I've got a call from my Father in heaven to love and protect and to provide. Not to offer her up to the things that God had already delivered us from. It's sad, but it is so evident that her father seemed to be more concerned about the fear of losing his family's name than protecting his own daughter. You don't see any conversation from the father to the daughter. Like, hey, you sure you want, like, you don't have to do this. There's no compassion that we see with the woman towards her master. There's no consideration as to what her needs are. There's there's no question asked. What's your desire here? What seemed to be assumed is that she was going to return whether she desired to or not. Like there's, there's no way around us looking at this. This woman is property. She is an object to be used. For the father, he desired to avoid disgrace. And for the master, he desired sexual favors. And unfortunately, this had become a dark reality of how women were treated in this culture. It seems a bit like the world we live in today. Let's keep moving, though. We'll come back to that. Verse 9, we see the man and his concubine, they're set to leave. Father's got him to stay a couple times, and now it's like, all right, we're, we're leaving. Dude, I'm going on my way, and so they're set to leave, and they head to Jebus. Again, like last week, we, we know that this should be a Benjamite, Benjamite town, but they failed to drive out the Canaanites. Just like all the other Israelites, they failed to do what God asked them to do, to drive out your enemies and therefore, it's remained under the reign and rule of the Canaanites, so they're not ready to settle. You follow along there. They're not ready to settle. He pushes on towards Gibeah and Benjamin, and that is where they stop and stay the night. Now, what's interesting here is that as they arrive in the town square, it's getting dark. It's grown quiet. This is a, this is a, a town and should be run by Israelites, by family. Like, this, this should be a welcoming place, but it, the town's grown quiet. No one is there to welcome them except for an old Ephraimite man. And he hears who they are, where they're headed. 
And then he invites them to stay in his home, like such great hospitality. He sees a need, come and stay in my home. But in verse 20, Jared, you read through 21? Yeah? In verse 20, we see there seems to be something off in this town. He says, hey, let's not spend the night in the town square. Again, this is supposed to be a safe place. Like this is this is supposed to be home. This family of families, this this region is supposed to be run and operated by God's people. But instead, that's not what we see. It's not a Canaanite town. Nonetheless, the old man says, "Hey, we gotta we gotta go. We can't stay in the square tonight." Now it doesn't take long to see what he's hinting at. While they were in the house getting settled, we see that some of the wicked men from the city, they show up and they surround the home. This is where it gets a bit dark. They violently demand, as God's people, they violently demand that the Levite man, God's people, we're, we're no longer dealing with Canaanites and Israelites. We're, we're dealing with the mess of what's supposed to be God's people. They violently demand that this man be sent out and they make it known that their desire was to pleasure the flesh. They were going to sexually assault this man. Demanded it. Now just as a side note, I found it a bit interesting. When you have time, you should go back and read the account of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis chapter 19. Like it's striking how similar these instances with Lot and, and where Sodom and Gomorrah was, it's striking how similar these stories are and yet how different they turn out. Like when God is feared and as opposed to mocked through the lives of his people. And here, his people have continued this cycle to get worse and worse and mock God's faithfulness. Go back and read Genesis 19. But moving on, similar with the father, the owner, this older gentleman, owner of his house, he understands his call for hospitality to care for his guests. So he is to extend hospitality, culturally speaking, and to protect them. And so with that in mind, he steps outside, thankfully, to address the wicked men. What a noble idea. I'm going to step outside. Y'all stay here. Except what he does next is the worst thing we've seen yet. Confronts the men, you can follow along there and, and hear his cry. Please don't do this, evil, my brothers. After all, this man has come into my house. Don't commit this horrible outrage. Period. Shut the door. Trust the faithful God's protection. Do the next right thing. Shut the door, defend your guests, but in order to save face and protect the man in his house, listen to what he says. Here, don't do that. Don't come after my man, my, my guest. He says, let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Abuse them. Do whatever you want to them, but don't commit this outrageous thing against this man. 
Man, he, he could have just sent the man out. He could have shut the door. He could have just, next option, send the man out to protect the woman, the women. He cries out, don't hurt him. Take these two women instead. Like, what is happening? What is happening? Here are the people of God. They have been given the covenants of generations past. Abraham and Moses have gone before them. They have the law. They knew of the great story of God's faithfulness through the story of Exodus. They had seen God raise up judges over and over again to deliver them out of their oppression. And here they are, not just living amongst the idols of the land, but willingly entrenched in all of the mess around them. The question is no longer, how did we get here? But why haven't we left? It's no longer like, man, how did, how did we get here to this point in history? It's why do we keep running back? What is it that is so just intriguing for us about the idols of culture that we just look at it and we see God's faithfulness. We have the covenants of Moses and Abraham and the better covenant of Christ. And we know all that. But something in our heart says, no, 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 no. You still need that. Why haven't we left? And so several thousand years, several thousand years later on this side of the story, here we are. And as much as it grieves me to say it, how haven't we left? Like we're still entrenched in the mess all around us. Like I believe the degrading of women is deeply embedded in our culture. Obviously, these are Israelites. Our DNA, God's chosen people, it is deeply embedded in our culture. And as Keller says, he says, we should be very cautious of drawing neat, tidy lines between this incident and our own times. They treated women as property. They were less than, just an object to use. Y'all, these, these are real women. This isn't some made-up narrative story. Not, this isn't some fable. These are real women who were created with value and dignity and worth, and this coward offers them up to be sexually abused and humiliated. Why? Because his desires are deceitful. He'd rather be approved by culture. He'd rather save face and just live in the comfort than to take a stand and be a voice for the voiceless. To the vulnerable, the ones who, who need somebody to step in, he'd rather just save face and be approved by culture. So as the story goes, the wicked men took the offer. They took just the concubine and they had their way with her. You can read the text and see exactly what happened. One author said it like this, if ever a human being endured a night of utter horror, it was her. That night must have been for her as dark as the pits of hell itself. The scripture says, after a whole night, 
They let her go. She returned to the house and she fell down at the door. And we're not sure if she knocked on the door and just nobody answered. All we know is what we see next. Her master, the Levite, who apparently just went to bed like any other normal evening. Man of God. He wakes up. He opens up the door in the morning and he sees that she's fallen on the doorway with her hands on the threshold. And like you would with an animal, he says, get up. There's no answer. This woman has had everything taken from her. And as if that's not enough, there's one final ultimate violation. She's denied the dignity of a burial. At this point, the Levite has no further use for this woman except for her one last time as a means to, to really spark a war. Now, two weeks left. Told you 22 weeks in Judges. I told you 20 weeks ago it gets bad. We're going to end with a civil war. And so the Levite has no further use for this woman except for one last time as a means to spark a war, and he takes his knife out. And he cuts her up into 12 pieces. And he sends her body parts out to the tribes of Israel. Now what is interesting about this interaction is that he doesn't seem to be grieved by her sexual assault or murder. No, no, no. This is not a public call to arms for vengeance of the horrific things they did to her. Instead, this, this seems to just be a public call to arms because he lost his property. There's no grieving. He just lost his property, and he's mad. He wants war from what they took for him. As it ends, everyone who saw it said nothing like this has ever happened or has been seen since the day the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt until now. Think it over, discuss it, and speak up. Now what is the result of a culture that lives by this phrase, everyone does what is right in their own eyes? As I thought through, and man, I've been praying on this text for probably four weeks, knowing it was coming. I just got to thinking like, man, what, where, Spirit, what do you want from us? What is it that we can read? As Jared said, this is, his, his word is, is living and breathing, it's active. And so what is the result of a culture that lives by this phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes? Well, one author does a beautiful job. He answers this question like this. When everybody does what is right in their own eyes, it's not a golden utopia of free love. Man, I feel like I'm reading people's, I don't have Twitter, but I'm, like their Instagram feeds and what, what, the, what people who think it's like to live and do what is just right, and what you feel, and all this stuff. It's not a utopia of free love, limitless self-expression and creativity. Instead, it is a world of chaos and cruelty where justice fails. The narratives recorded in Judges belong to our world, a world full of revenge and violence, of misguided conflicts, war crimes, and exploitation of those most vulnerable. But family... I've said it over and over again. There is a better way. 
Here, here is what I think is the better way. I, I know this to be true. You can read God's word. I believe we all have desires in our own hearts. Like that is a deep, natural characteristic of any human being. I've never met anybody, even if they weren't believers, of just like, oh, this life is meaningless. They still have desires. They still have some sort of desires. I believe it's a deep, natural characteristic characteristic of every human being. God has created you this, this way. Why? Because he desired you. You have desires because your creator has desired you into existence, like his deepest desire. Reading all of this darkness is to heal, restore, to make all things new, to redeem, to reconcile, and to save. And the deepest desire of each of our hearts, if, we're, if we can take the time to slow down and, and to really think I think can be summed up as to be known and loved. All of us. We, we just want to, to be known and we just want to know that we're loved. By the God who desired you into existence. He loves you. and You can be known in him. And at the deepest part of your soul, marked by the actual image of God, your desire really is just to be with God. That's it. But when we don't notice our desires, it, it becomes extremely tragic. Like, what is it that I most deeply want? What, what is it that I most deeply long for and desire? Last week, we looked at the idols of our heart. And if you take it a step further, those idols are there because we have unmet desire, desires. And as we just witnessed in the horrific story, and really since Genesis chapter 3, we know that our desires can be distorted. They can be dark. They can be distracting for each of us. For example, I would venture to say most of us desire to do well with work. I've never met anybody that says, I can't wait to show up to work and just do a terrible job. I've never had anybody say that. Most everyone desires to do well with work. Great desire, but when work defines you, it's now become your idol. You have a desire to do well at work, but when it defines you, the idol is that. Most everyone I know has a desire to make money. It's a great desire to provide for your family. But when the pursuit of that money, the desire to provide for your family actually turns into greed, now it's become your idol. Scripture tells us clearly that our desires are at war all the time. Like the word of God is aware of this tension. And the tension lies in the question I asked at the beginning of our time this morning. Why? Why do such horrible things take place in our world? Why do such horrible things take place in the word of God? I believe God chooses to not shy away from this type of content that his own people, that we have committed because his desire for each of us is that such horrific content in our own lives would actually jolt us to wake us up to see how hideous our sin really is. Or as I said a few weeks ago, to divorce the idols of our heart. I think the answer lies in that tension. His desire for you, as we read and encounter all of this mess, is that it actually would just jolt you, to, to wake you up, to spur you on to the sense of how hideous our sin is. 
I think about what Paul said in Romans chapter 7 as he reflected on his own sinfulness. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? What wretched people we are when we move away from Jesus. Like when we are left to our own will, our own deceitful desires, Paul answers his own question, who will rescue, rescue you? Ah, uh, yes. Thanks be to God. Romans 7.25, for he has given me a great rescuer through Jesus Christ. Now our tragic events end with a Levite priest unashamedly putting a woman's cut up body on public display. Public display as a call to war. But the better way is to look to Jesus. Jesus as our great high priest who is mocked and shamed and spit on and put on public display. To look to that as a call that the war is actually over. This Levite priest wanted to spark war. He put her on display. He used her. Jesus looks at us and says, yeah, 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 the war is won. I, I'm going to the cross for you. I will be on public display. I will be shamed for you. I will be spit on and beaten and bruised and broken for you. The war is finished with Christ. He dies the death we all deserve. Family, we've got to go to war with our own flesh. Like that, that's the call for us. We have to go to war against our flesh. This question haunts me. How have we not left? Why have we not left the mess? Why do we keep running back to the deceitful desires? How haven't we left? Lord, have mercy on us. Father, we come before you this morning and we humbly come before you. Submit to you that we need your help. I wrestled for weeks on this text. What to do? What should I say? What should I not say? And Lord, I, I feel like it is ever so clear that you are calling us to something better than we see here in Judges. There is truly a better way. And God, we are, we are not much different than your children who were turning their back on you pursuing deceitful desires in their own hearts. Lord, we are not much better than them. Why haven't we left? Why haven't we learned? Why do we still find ourselves going back to the idols of our heart? Bowing down to the things that would never lay their life down for us. Lord, would you graciously show us the truth about ourselves today? Think about what Paul says in, in Galatians 5, talking about the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Lord, it is, it is a distinct difference when we read that.
works of the flesh, they're obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuous thoughts, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, and anything similar. I'd venture to say none of us want that. But there's deceitful desires in our own heart, wickedness. So would you graciously show us the truth about our hearts? And then, Lord, would you graciously show us the truth about ourself also, no matter how beautiful it is? And what I mean by that, God, is, is there's this call here for us to, to admit how wretched our hearts are. We hear that list and we're like, yes, that's all of me. I don't want that. But then there's also, there's also this tendency where we just stay in that shame cycle. Like, I keep going back to this. God, why do I keep going back to this? And we miss this beautiful invitation to actually see how you see us. Like when you sent your son Jesus, it's very clear in scriptures. We were once, sin, we were once sons of disobedience and disaster. Left to our own doing, we have screwed it up terribly. The beauty of the gospel that some of us might need to hear today is that when you sent your son Jesus who was the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, the one that you looked down on and said, it is finished, well done, good and faithful servant. You no longer turned your back, you no longer looked at our sin, but for those who call upon the name of Jesus, you see, as your scripture says, your son in us which means those who are caught up in this sin and shame right now, those who have been sinned against and feel like there's a tagline on them, that they feel dirty and unclean, that they can never just measure up, those who feel unwanted and unloved, those who feel that you, you have turned your back on them, if they're a believer, the beauty of the gospel is all you see is your son Jesus in his perfectionness, his perfection and his righteousness. And you say we have been made clean because of Christ. We no longer have to carry a label. We no longer have to, to be defined by the culture. And because of that, even, even more so, you, you can spur us on to, to give voice for those who don't have a voice. That we can uh, fight for the unjust and the unrighteousness that has taken place in our world. And we can stand up because we want people to experience the grace of Jesus just like we have. And so, Lord, it's not just you saved us from something, but you've saved us to something. Would we see not just how wretched we are today? Some of us need to stay there for a second. But then as we lament, grieve that sin, would we turn to you and see just how beautiful we are from your eyes. Would you move this morning? I believe you are wanting to meet your people with compassion more than they could ever imagine. Lord, would you 
by the power of your spirit, show us what needs to be put to death in our own heart. Lord, and if there's some of us here that have heard this story in our It's bringing up things, maybe things that they've endured. Draw near to them, please, Father. May they find rest and comfort and healing in the things, the wretched things that have been done to them. Restore what has been taken and broken. Lift their eyes to you. They are beautiful and loved and chosen and adopted and you see your son Jesus in them. Whatever it is this morning, you are safe in the love of God. He sees your beauty. He sees your brokenness. He's never reluctant to move towards you with the compassion you need. And his desire is for you to mold you in the person that he wants you to be. So, Spirit, would you move this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.